Before we uh, get too far into it, however, let me put this into some historic perspective. Those of you that uh, heard me teach a couple of weeks ago about the life of Abraham may remember the dates that I used to organize my understanding of Old Testament history. The principal dates of the Old Testament are, are Abraham, right about 2000 B.C., and you have Moses, right about 1500 B.C., and you have King David, right at 1000 B.C., you have the return of the exiles, just about 500 B.C., and then you have Jesus at zero. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been back with Abraham, back at 2000 B.C., and his great-grandson, uh, Joseph, about 100, 100 years later, about 1900 B.C. But today, we're going to jump about 1,000 years over to King David's great-great-grandson. So, in your middle timeline, move over to King David at 1000 B.C., and then drop down about four generations, about 150 years, and hang Jehoshaphat there, about 850 B.C. A lot had happened between Joseph, who we studied last week, and Jehoshaphat. Uh, The people had stayed in Egypt for 400 years. God had led them out through Moses. They had conquered the land under Joshua, set up the kingdom first under Saul, then under the great king David, who unified all the tribes and brought peace to all of the people. When David died, he left the kingdom to his son Solomon. When Solomon died, he left it to his son Rehoboam. Now, unfortunately, Rehoboam wasn't very bright. Actually, he was bright enough, but he just didn't obey God, and that's not very bright. Under his terrible leadership, the kingdom split, with only the two southern tribes staying with Rehoboam. Benjamin and Judah stayed with Rehoboam, and the northern ten tribes broke off and appointed their own king, a guy by the name of Jeroboam. So now you've got Rehoboam, the king of the southern tribes, known as the kingdom of Judah, And you've got Jeroboam, king of the northern tribes, known as Israel. Anyway, Rehoboam died, left the kingdom of Judah to his son Abijah, Abijah to his son Asa, and Asa to Jehoshaphat. If you wanted to keep going and were willing to attempt to pronounce another 23 or 24 names, you could come all the way to Jesus. Because Jehoshaphat is the great, great, to the 19th power, grandfather of Jesus. Anyway, you got Josephat now, the king of Judah. Like I said, a lot of things had changed. Uh, A lot of ups and downs for the country. A A lot of great leaders and a lot of terrible leaders. Actually, Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, was a good and godly king for most of his life. He kind of messed up at the end, but for most of his life, he was a good, godly king. And he taught Jehoshaphat a lot of lessons, some of them good, some of them bad. But really, the most important thing that had happened between uh, Joseph and Jehoshaphat was that during that period of time, the majority of our scriptures had been written. The majority of the Bible... And the majority of the Old Testament had been written. That was an enormous advantage to Jehoshaphat, as it is to us. It's an advantage that, that uh, Jehoshaphat made good use of. In fact, that's how his story begins. <clears throat> In chapter 17 of Second Chronicles, verse 4, we are told that he sought the God of his father 
and walked in his commandments. You see, his heart really was after God. And he was committed to responding to God's word. Verse 6, we're also told, his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. Now the high places and the Asherim were the places where these people worshipped other gods. Ever since they moved into the area of Palestine, the people of Israel struggled with worshipping other gods. You know, they all gave lip service to the true God. They all said, yeah, I'm a Christian. But when it came down to it, to their everyday lives, they were more inclined to try to live like the people around them. They paid very little attention to what the scriptures actually said. They were more affected by the priorities of their culture and their society than they were by God's priorities. They're more inclined to rely on the experts of their day than to rely on God. And over and over and over, this led to disaster, to people's lives being ruined, uh, to people being destroyed. And see, this was obvious to Jehoshaphat as he read the scriptures. So he wanted to change things. He wanted something better for, for the people that he led. So in verse 7, we're told that in the third year of his reign, now realize this is actually the first year that he was king all by himself. For the last three years, his father Asa was very sick, and so Jehoshaphat was king along with Asa. They were co-kings together. See, Asa had been uh, rebelling against God for those last three years, actually a little bit longer than that, until the point that he finally died. Back in uh, chapter 16, we were told, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died. I look out there and I see a few physicians, so I have to change my sermon slightly. Instead of telling you that it's a sin to go to all physicians, uh, I think what the point that our chronicler is making is not that it's a sin to go to the doctor. It's not a sin to take advantage of the resources that God provides, whether it's a doctor or a counselor, whether it's a pastor, whether it's your family. It's not a sin to take advantage of these resources. But you see, Asa was doing it out of his anger with God, out of his attempt to resist God. Asa went to the physicians instead of to God. You see, we can go to physicians or whatever other resource God provides, fully trusting in God, knowing that it is He who will meet our needs regardless of the means that He uses. And He can use any means that He wants to. This is the clear message of all of Scripture. King David wrote in Psalm 20, talking about this, he said, The Lord saves His anointed. He answers Him from His holy heaven with the saving power of His right hand. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Save, O Lord, may God never, or excuse me, may God answer us in the day that we call. See the stories of Abraham and of Joseph and of Joshua and all the rest demonstrate that it is God who we can turn to. God is the one that we can trust. 
But Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, ignored the scriptures. He ignored these lessons and refused to turn to God. And as a result, he suffered, and as a result, the whole nation suffered. And Jehoshaphat, as a young man, observes all this and wants to change, wants to see his country go in a different direction. So that's what he did. Again, back in verse 7 of chapter 17. In the third year of his reign, he sent the princes, uh, the, the most important officials of his country, the most important people for this most important task. He sent out these guys. One of them, incidentally, we'll come back to this, is named Micaiah. He lists the rest of their names here. But anyway, he sends out these princes and the Levites and two priests, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. See, Jehoshaphat was a very wise man. He knew that he couldn't change his people by haranguing them. By, by trying to make them feel guilty for their compromises and for their foolishness. He couldn't demand that their hearts go to God. That's not how things change spiritually. That's not how people grow. People change spiritually. People grow by being fed the Word of God. Because you can't change people from the outside. It's God's Word that begins to change from the inside. And that's what he decided to do. The way people grow, the way people change, is by feeding on the Scriptures. King David wrote uh, 150 years before this, How will a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed to God's Word. The New Testament refers to the Scriptures as our spiritual food, even comparing it to mother's milk at one place, because just as mother's milk nourishes and sustains a baby's physical life so it can develop. So the scriptures nourish and sustain our spiritual life so we can develop. You cannot develop spiritually apart from the Word of God. Paul, the apostle, when he was leaving Ephesus for the last time, says to them, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are God's people. You know, again, Jehoshaphat knows the Scriptures well enough to understand this, that you don't change people from the outside. You can't demand that their hearts turn to God. But instead, you give them, you teach them the Word of God, and God uses that to change them from the inside. You see, that's the foundation of our ministry here. We are firmly committed to this principle and therefore committed to teaching the Word of God. Now, everyone here, including the leaders, maybe especially the leaders, struggle with sin. I could begin listing the sins of our society and asking you to raise your hand if this was something you struggled with. And if people were brave enough and honest enough, everything that I would list, hands would go up. I could ask you, how many people here have some uh, substance abuse in their life? And many would raise their hands. Dozens would raise their hands. Or how many here struggle with some sexual addiction that you can't break? And others, if they were honest, the hands would go up. 
How many of you here cannot control your anger and even become violent with your family? Again, hands would go up. These are not just the sins of our society. These are our sins. I could go on listing other sins of the society. How many people here live only to gain material wealth? How many place things over people in their priorities? How many always insist that everything go their way? How many spend uh, no energy on their marriage or no energy on their relationship with God? I could go on and on. And the reason I could go on is because all that I have to do is to look at my heart and my life and from myself I could come up with a sufficient list of sins to keep going and going. But you see, we are committed to this principle that we don't change and we don't help you change by haranguing you, by trying to make you feel guilty for your struggles and your failures. We don't change you just by setting rules, even though rules are sometimes valuable and important. Now, the way people change, the only effective way to encourage change in people's lives is feeding them the Word of God, letting God use that to change people from the inside, to to set them free, to open their eyes to what life is and to who He is. You know, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, God's Word is truth. But being exposed to God's Word isn't enough. When um, Scriptures talk about hearing the Word, it's more than just having the sound vibrate your eardrums. It requires a response. And that's what we see in Jehoshaphat's life. Uh, if you remember, we were told that, that he walked in God's commandments and his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. See, it affected the way he lived. It affected his thinking and his actions. And that's why Scripture records him as an example for us to follow. But fortunately, Jehoshaphat is a realistic example because like all of us, he struggled with these things. So what I want to do is look at a couple events in Jehoshaphat's life to see how he struggled, to see how much like us he really is. Chapter 18, next chapter, we're told that Jehoshaphat began to make alliances with Ahab, the king of Israel. Now realize The kings of Israel were universally evil and wicked, and Ahab was particularly bad news. And the kings of Judah had been instructed by God not to to align themselves, not to make alliances with the kings of Israel. But you see, I think Jehoshaphat looked up to Ahab. And Ahab was a real king. He was aggressive and sophisticated. He had treaties with Phoenicia and with the Syrians. He knew how to play the game. He was, he was a real king's king, a real businessman. If he was around today, he would have been the CEO or the chairman of the board of some Fortune 500 company, a shaker and a mover. Jehoshaphat uh, saw that and it attracted him to Ahab and he wanted to hang around him. You know, most of us have people like that in our lives. Somebody who's involved in the same business you are, doing the same activities you are. Somebody who is aggressive and and sophisticated, who really seems to set the pace. Somebody who uh, you look up to and you're attracted to. But unfortunately, this guy that Jehoshaphat looked up to was terribly wicked. 
Now, I'm sure he claimed to be a believer. Uh, He claimed to be very spiritual, that he and God were close. See, most people do claim that. But we'll see in his response to the word of God that this isn't true, that this is a shallow uh, spirituality, because true spirituality is demonstrated in how we respond to God's word. Anyway, uh, Jehoshaphat was up visiting Ahab. Ahab throws this huge feast for him. He's really laying it on thick. Kills all of these animals. And they're having a huge party for him. And this is really stroking Jehoshaphat's ego. He's feeling good. He's feeling important. You know, this is the same guy that has treaties with the Syrians and the Phoenicians. And look how he's treating me. This appeals to the, the desire in all of us to be accepted and respected. So Jehoshaphat uh, is sitting there enjoying this feast, feeling very important. So when Ahab suggests they do some business together, he immediately agrees. Ahab says, okay, let's go together and attack Ramoth-Gilead and take it away from the Syrians. Jehoshaphat says, count me in. I'm with you, man. Let's do it. Then almost as an afterthought, he says, but let's inquire of the Lord first. Let's, let's see what God thinks about this. Man, red flags should have been popping up all over the place for Jehoshaphat. Now, first of all, um, Ahab has a treaty with the Syrians. And to go attack Ramoth-Gilead without provocation was treachery. And if Ahab would betray his good buddy, the king of Syria, this easily, what makes Jehoshaphat think that he wouldn't betray him just as quickly? You know, think about that. The next time somebody is betraying one of their friends and making you feel very important in the process or sharing that bit of gossip with you that really is hurting somebody else, realize this person is going to turn on you, is going to use you just as quickly. Pay attention to those red flags, especially if they're making you feel important. Well, the other red flag that should have gone up was what happens next. See, uh, Joseph had, a- had asked, well, let's inquire the Lord. So Ahab says, no problem, I'll get my prophets together. So he calls his 400 prophets. But the problem was none of these guys knew God. They were telling them anything they wanted to hear. They're like so many churches today who will tell you that your sin is okay. That it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Or that God is like a a doting grandfather who's behind you no matter what you choose to do, no matter how wrong or unhealthy or destructive. Anyway, these prophets are telling uh, Jehoshaphat and, and Ahab, go, attack, God will give you the victory. God's on your side. And Jehoshaphat's not buying it. He knows something's wrong. He says, isn't there a real prophet we could hear from? And Ahab's response is is pretty comical. Look at verse 7 of chapter 18. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. You know, Ahab hates this guy because the guy speaks the truth, and Ahab hates the truth. He says, He never says anything good about me. I hate him. That shocks Joseph. Joseph says, whoa, don't talk that way about a prophet, about a man of God. You know, again, Ahab, our Jehoshaphat knows this is not right. But it goes on. Verse 8. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Kenanath, 
or Kanina, excuse me, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Arameans, that's the Syrians, until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to get Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. This guy's trying to help Micaiah out. He says, Man, just agree with them. Don't cause problems. You know, be cool. Just go ahead and say what he wants to what he wants you to say. Micaiah's response is, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Oh, attack and be victorious, he answered, for they will be given into your hand. Obvious sarcasm in his voice, because what the king says to him next is, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? See, uh, Micaiah just basically said that Ahab was going to die and the people would be scattered with no leader. Then he went on and he says, these prophets are lying to you. They knew that. But one of the prophets walks up to Micaiah and hits him in the face. And then Ahab says, put this man in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah's response to the king, if you return safely. The Lord has not spoken through me. See, there's no question that Jehoshaphat should get out right now. If there was any doubt that Ahab was bad news, that's gone. But you see, I think there was really no doubt all along. Jehoshaphat knew deep down in his heart that Ahab was wrong and that he shouldn't be aligning himself with Ahab. But you see, once you start hiding the truth from yourself. Once you start trying to suppress it and ignore it so you can go ahead and do what you want to do, it gets harder and harder to extricate yourself. You get in deeper and deeper. And that's what happened to Jehoshaphat. He knew he shouldn't go along, but once he started going along, it got harder and harder to pull out, harder and harder to stop till the point where he had to compromise himself more and more. I'm afraid we've all been there. Anyway, verse 28, we're told that he went with Ahab to go attack Ramoth Gilead. And there we see what a fool he had become. It's incredible how stupid he became and how stupid we can become. Ahab says to him explicitly, he says, listen, you dress up in your royal robes so that everybody will know that you're a king and I'll disguise myself. That way... When they try to kill the king, they'll try to kill you instead of me. And Jehoshaphat goes, oh, okay, sounds good. And you go, Jehoshaphat, come on, man, don't be so dumb. But you know, sin makes us dumb. 
As soon as we start hiding from the truth we already know in our hearts, we can astound ourselves with our stupidity. You know, ask anyone who's had an affair how dumb they can be. Or anyone who's begun to cut corners on the IRS. Or anyone who has begun to allow their, their, their own addictions to destroy their lives and the people they love. Sin makes us profoundly stupid. Anyway, as expected, Jehoshaphat gets into trouble. The Syrian king had told his armies, don't worry about anything except killing Ahab. That's all I want you to do. And sure enough, they mistake Jehoshaphat for Ahab and they come after him. And when he's cornered, Ahab cries out to God and God pulls him out of it. Somehow God leads the chariots away and frees him. See, it's not until he cries out to God that he's saved. But at the same time, some Syrian soldier just shot an arrow in the air. Where it went, he knew not where. But it strikes Ahab right in the seam of his armor and kills him. Just like God's word had said. You see, there are no stray arrows in life. There are no true accidents. Our God is in control. When Josephat gets back to uh, Jerusalem, he's met by a prophet there, a guy by the name of Jehu, son of Hanani. Jehu confronts him. He says, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Now, what had, what had Jehoshaphat done? Well, he had ignored the word of God. He had resisted God's word. Like I said, most of the scriptures, or the majority of the scriptures, were written by then. But the prophets were still speaking. And what the prophets were speaking was being written down, and that became the rest of our Bibles, the rest of our Old Testament. And in rejecting what the prophets were saying, Jehoshaphat was rejecting the word of God. And then on top of that, he sat by while this man of God was hit in the face, and he did nothing, and thrown into prison, and he did nothing. This Micaiah, who Jehoshaphat betrayed, may have been a friend of his. It may have been the same Micaiah he sent out, one of the princes that he sent out to teach the scriptures to the people. And now he acted like he didn't know him. He didn't defend him. He didn't try to help him. But the worst thing that happened was that Jehoshaphat's weakness for being a man-pleaser, his desire to be around the important people, caused him not only to compromise his walk with God, but to actually betray his friendship with God, to care more about impressing someone who hated God than being a true friend of God's. Again, how often we have been there. Now note how... Josephat responded when he was confronted by this prophet, Jehu. You know, many years before, Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, had been confronted by Jehu's father, Hanani. Asa had gotten into trouble. He was being attacked by an Ethiopian and Libyan army that had about a million soldiers. And so he turned to God. He said, O Lord, there is none like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you and in your name have come out against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. 
Do not let these men prevail against thee. And God routed the Ethiopian, this huge, huge Ethiopian army. God routed them in front of Asa's troops. Well, the next time Asa got into trouble by an army just a fraction of that size, a small army, in fact, he doesn't turn to God. He tries to handle it himself, and he turns to the Syrians and tries to get their help, and he messes everything up. And so Hanani came to him, and he confronted him. He said, Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show his might on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have acted foolishly in this. You know, Hanani was saying, look, God was just looking for a chance to help you. That's the kind of God he is. His eyes run to and forth throughout the whole earth looking for people who can show his power through, people he can come behind and help, people whose hearts are fully committed to him. He says, Asa, God wanted to help you, but you wouldn't give him the chance. You wouldn't turn to him. You tried to handle it on your own and you messed it up. And this is where Asa really falls apart. His response to Hanani is to become enraged and he throws Hanani into prison and we're told from that point on he began to treat the people that he ruled over cruelly. You see, when we start running from God, we begin to treat others badly. In fact, that's a clue. That tips us off that that's what's going on. When you begin to treat your wife badly, to treat your kids badly, Stop and ask yourself how you're running from God. Anyway, now we have Jehoshaphat, Asa's son, being confronted by Jehu, Hanani's son, with basically the same situation, confronting him saying, listen, you turned away from trusting God. You betrayed God. But Jehoshaphat had seen what his father had done. He had seen that to resist and to harden is the wrong choice. So he instead turns and repents. In fact, what he does is he goes out among the people personally, himself, and shares his experience. He calls them back to God and warns them against becoming man-pleasers like he had done. You see, his response to being confronted with his sin is to turn and to repent. And how we respond when we are confronted with our sin is one of the most important things in our lives. The natural tendency is going to be to, like Asa, to resist, to hate the one who comes with the truth, to to fight hearing it. But the result of that is destruction, just more and more sin, getting in deeper and deeper until you drown. Instead, we've got to see the exposure of our sin as God's generous salvation, the first step toward freedom, the first step toward health. The difference between the damned and the saved is not that one sins and the other doesn't. It is that one refuses to face their sin while the other faces it, lets it break their pride and resistance and turns to God who is anxious, who is aching for the chance to restore and to heal and to teach and to love. Well, like I said, Jehoshaphat is one of the ones who faced his sin and turned to God. 
He repented honestly from the heart, which is a good thing because now he's about to, to face his greatest challenge, his greatest test, his greatest trial. Chapter 20, we are told that an enormous army from the south has come up to invade. By the time word gets to Jehoshaphat, they're only a day's march away. And so what Jehoshaphat does is he calls all the people of Judah together to Jerusalem and he leads them in prayer. And he starts his prayer by praise, by reminding himself and the people just who God is. He says to God, You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your right hand and no one can withstand you. Then he reminds the people of what God has said. He reminds them that God has given them this land and he's promised if anyone tries to take this land away from them, they can turn to God and God will take care of them. And finally he gets to his request, to expressing his need. There in verse 11, chapter 20. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now, what a perfect pattern for prayer. Starting with praise, remembering who God is, remembering His ability to handle any problem, any need that we have. And then recalling His promises. And then finally, expressing our dependence and our need. You know, Jehoshaphat shows no pride here, no faking it to look good. He says flat out, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is true strength. This is real leadership to say uh, honestly, without shame, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. See, life often puts us in that position where we don't know what to do. But as long as our eyes are on Him, we cannot despair because He knows what to do and we really can trust Him. We learn this from life, but more importantly, we learn this from the Scriptures. So then after this prayer, God answers Jehoshaphat through a prophet, verse 15 of chapter 20. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and watch the deliverance the Lord will give you. Oh, Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Here you have the prophet who basically says, Listen, you just stand by and watch. God's going to handle this one all by himself. The battle's not yours. It's the Lord's. Whether you realize it or not, every battle you face, this is true. The battle isn't yours. It's the Lord's. You belong to Him and He has committed Himself to your care. So every battle, no matter how overwhelming, is His. Whether it's the hardness of your spouse's heart 
whether it's some illness, whether it's uh, even just loneliness or a struggle against a compelling and compulsive sin, the battle is the Lord's, and He will have the victory. Now, He hasn't said that you won't lose your marriage or that you won't die from an illness or even that you won't be lonely or that you won't struggle against sin. You know, sometimes the ultimate victory won't be until heaven. But knowing that the battle is the Lord's frees us up to trust Him, to rest in Him, to praise Him and to find our peace in Him. That's what the people of Judah do. They march out free from fear, praising God. Verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voice. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah, and the people of Jerusalem. Trust in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in His prophets, that's His word, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, Give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. You see, as they praised, the problem went away. Never underestimate the power of prayer. Never underestimate the power of praise. See, God is able to deliver us by prayer alone. Often he'll use other means. Often he'll use people around us. He'll use other resources. And so it will look very mundane. But if he chooses, he can deliver us by prayer alone. Now we can't reject and resist the other provisions he makes, the other means that he may use. Um, Reminds me of a story I've told you before about a man who's in a flood, climbs up on the top of his house to stay out of the waters, Waters begin to rise. A boat comes along, and, and the man has prayed, God, save me. The boat comes, and they say, get in. He says, no, no, I've prayed. God will save me. Water keeps rising. Pretty soon, uh, another boat full of people come by, and they say, hey, there's room. Come on in. We'll get you out of here. And he says, no, no, I trust God. He'll save me. The waters continue to rise until he's standing on the tip of his house. A helicopter comes by and drops a ladder down. And he says, thank you, No. I trust in the Lord. He will save me. The water keeps rising over his head and he drowns. He gets to heaven and he marches into the throne room and he demands of God. He says, I trusted you. How come I drown? God says, boy, I can't figure that one out myself. I sent two boats and a helicopter. See, we can't reject and resist the resources, the means that God may use to save us because we just don't like how he's doing it. We've got to allow him to be God. But even then, even when he uses other means, we accept that in the context of our trust in him. We don't turn to these other means. We don't turn to doctors or counselors or family or the church or anyone else. 
to resist God, to avoid God. But we embrace these resources in the context of trusting Him, realizing that He is the one who will save us. He is the one we depend on. Verse 26, what happens is the, uh, by the time the armies of, the, of Judah arrive on the scene, there's no one left to fight. The people had turned on each other and killed each other until the entire enemy army was wiped out. All that's left is to pick up the loot. Verse 26, On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Berakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why it's called the valley of Berakah to this day. That's the valley of praise. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. The fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, and the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. You know how often... When we are overwhelmed, when we are terrified, when the battle just seems too much. If we will remember that the battle is the Lord's. If we will trust Him and His Word and sing His praises as we march into the battle. By the time we get there, the battle is over. The victory is won. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had the hard responsibility of confronting a friend, an associate who was in sin. And I dreaded it. I feared it. I, I was sure he would resist and, and, and deny and resent me. I, f- I was afraid of the encounter. I was afraid of losing his friendship forever. But it was the right thing to do, the loving thing, and I knew I needed to call him. But the next morning before I called, he called me. And he said, all of this is true. I need help. And our fellowship was sweet as we talked about the help that he needed. You see, the battle was over before I got there because the battle was the Lord's. Another situation, one of our missionaries uh, had a lump on her breast and it was assessed to be malignant. The doctors over there, as far as they could tell, this was cancer. So she came home to receive treatment. By the time she got home, they couldn't find a lump. Again, before she got here, the battle was over. The battle is the Lord's. But again, realize that every battle won't be over before you show up. Some of the battles you're going to have to fight. And you're going to have to fight hard. But even as you do, realize the battle is the Lord's. Even as you you struggle against uh, the, the, the thing that is destroying your family, even as you battle against that sin, even, even as, as you fight sickness or, 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 or the injustice in your life, realize that the battle is the Lord's and He is looking for the opportunity to help you. His eyes run to and fro through the whole earth to show His might on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Let me finish just with reading a a quote from David Roper as he wrote about this passage. He said, We must not then focus on our foes and our fear. We should rather turn from them to seek God's face in that tranquil place where He dwells. There is no panic there. 
And then from that quiet place, sally forth to face what we fear, singing to ourselves about His love, thanking Him for a contest already won, believing that the battle is not ours but the Lord's. And when we begin to praise Him, He will do the rest. He will deliver us from fear itself and surprise us with joy. The valley that we dread will become the valley of praise forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, just ask that you teach us these things, that you teach us to listen to your word, to not close our ears just because we want to do what we want to do, but to submit ourselves to what you say, knowing that your love, your wisdom is so much greater than ours. And Lord, when we do choose our own way, when we do fail to listen to your word, Help us to turn back quickly when we're confronted with our sins, to not fight and resist, but to embrace you, to let you restore and heal. Because, Lord, we want to walk into every battle of our lives confident in you, knowing that it is your battle, knowing that we can trust you and see your greatness, see your victory. Lord, we want to know you like that. We want to know that your desire is to show your faithfulness, your power for us. So, Lord, we pray that even this week, that as we face our battles, we would turn to you. We would recognize that it is your battle, and we would submit to you and to your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen.